As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. Radical transformation. Very radical transformation. morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a gallery. place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. The hell is that? <laughs> the man is tired of London. He's tired of London. So life. what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, meet what, immersing yourself in the sights and sounds. For the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Hello, it's Friday, January the 11th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, today we're at the Museum of London, which is an amalgamation of two earlier museums, the Guildhall Museum, founded in 1826, and the London Museum, founded in 1912. Both collections came together after the Second World War, and the new Museum of London opened in 1976. It continues to occupy its original building, but opened a second public site in 2003, and that's the Museum of Docklands, and it's housed in a Grade 1 listed warehouse at Canary Wharf. Well, with me here at the Museum of London, Neil Denny is the producer and presenter of Little Atoms, a live talk show about ideas and culture, and that's on Resonance FM here in the city. Sharon Ament is the director here at the museum. She joined the museum in September 2012 to steer the world's leading city museum in the next phase of its development to reflect the energy and dynamism of London itself, and she was previously the director of public engagement at the Natural History Museum. So you you know your museums; those two huge uh, establishments here in uh, here in London. Hello, you both. First of all, Hi. hello, Hi. Quentin. Let's talk about gruel because I know this is uh, an issue that uh, has been troubling you, Sharon. Why are we supporting gruel today? Well, I'm particularly interested in how what people have for breakfast. Knowing as a cyclist, I need to gear up 
each day to make sure I can kind of I've got enough energy to cycle into work and I always have porridge and I'm particularly interested in um, the the, the meals that school kids are having before they uh, come to go to school is really important. We're all nutritionally kind of ready for the day. And uh, today in London, many school children are arriving at school without breakfast. OK, well, we'll be talking about how our mayor is hoping to tackle that. Neil, you've just got back from uh, a trip across the, the US. I say just got back, but um, it, it sounds pretty epic. You've been right across the States interviewing dozens of people. Yeah, I'm still pretty much full from all of the amazing breakfasts I ate over there. That was one of the one of the highlights of the trip. There's nothing like an American diner breakfast to set you up for a long day of interviews. <laughs> Does that really work? My, my limited experience of American diner breakfast is that you have to spend the rest of the day sitting there trying to burn off the calories somehow, mentally, I think. No energy to move. No, that's exactly it. So you have a big breakfast in the morning and then nothing for the rest of the day and then a small meal in the evening. If you're interested in finding out which is the most dangerous of London's underground stations to work at, then stay with us. We'll be finding out where you're most likely to get physically assaulted kind of disgusting story coming up there in fact it strikes me that a lot of our stories this week are transport related we've got several big cycling stories uh, and also some train stuff where should we start well um, I was particularly pleased to hear that Bradley Wiggins has uh, received a knighthood Uh, as a keen cyclist and follower of the Tour de France I'm especially proud of his achievements and um, as I was cycling over Southwark Bridge only yesterday I heard two workmen say oh it's like the Tour de France here it made me quickly get into the office and check my facial hair in case I'd grown sideboards <laughs> during my journey but cycling has increased in London by 400% um, and it's great to see all the Boris bikes out on the road and this new map that is um, potentially being uh, uh, pulled together f- to help cyclists wend their way around the streets of London. The increase in Boris bikes has been accompanied, of course, by a massive increase in the number of cycling casualties. It's risen by 50% between 2006 and 2011, a period, of course, that overlaps with the Boris bike period. They're talking about a new addition to the superhighway for cycles and also some rather ingenious ways of getting around bus stops, which are a perennial problem for cyclists. There's a, a picture on Londonist of the overall design. Perhaps, Neil, could you give us a, a, a verbal picture of this? Yeah, it's like a sort of little, uh, I guess, a little cycling chicane to um, to make the the the, um, the ride along the road not only not only safer but more interesting. <laughs> right, yes, you've got to be paying attention because if you miss that, then you're into the back of the bus in, in any case. Now, I can't help noticing in this illustration of what they've got in mind here, we've got two marooned individuals, um, two, two pedestrians, and they're on a sort of an island here. And in order to get to the bus, they've got to cross over um, the, the sort of blue lane that's been set up here. Now, my immediate reaction to this is, are people going to be disciplined enough to stay on the pedestrian bits and not walk in the blue bit? Is this, is this really going to work? Sharon, with your experience of being a cyclist in London, what what do you make of this? Well, every day I cycle down uh, Peckham, uh, Peckham High Street, and there's something very similar to this. Buses and a shared space for pedestrians and cyclists. And actually, pedestrians are quite disciplined. Uh, But you have to just live by your wits when you're a cyclist in London. This new design will help cyclists, certainly coming up on the left of large 
vehicles, HGVs and buses. So it should be safe. It's going to increase the, the strain on your on your thumbs because I think the bell was going to be a the cyclist bell is going to be employed a lot more often with this situation. I'm sure I heard somewhere that it's a legal requirement. You've got to have a bell on a bike. Is that true? No, not oh. that I know of. Lights, yes, not bells. Oh, that, wait, by that do you mean, Sharon, that you're breaking the law? <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. Well, I guess the, the, the one issue for motorists would be, with this, with this situation, would be cyclists swerving out into the road to go around the bus. And if they're doing that in the opposite direction, into the, into the sort of space of the path, then clearly that's a lot safer for the cyclists. But also, in the respects, it might take away the need for... for motorist to be to be vigilant i don't know if that's if that might be an issue well there's a consultation underway at the moment it ends today and uh, presumably we'll be finding out the uh, results of that the extension that they're talking about would increase the cycle superhighway by about three kilometers two miles in uh, real money and 1.5 kilometers in both directions of which 2.4 kilometers would be completely Segregated. It's a bit of me. Surely the complete segregation is the safest uh, way to do this, isn't it? Don't we just want cyclists to have a separate track of their own? No, it's absolutely about respecting everybody's right to be on the road. And as a cyclist, there's just a very fundamental issue to remember. Um, if, you're a, if you're a car driver, you, you can easily kill a cyclist. A cyclist very rarely can cause much damage to the individual in the car. So it's just the respect, really. And I think if we can move to being a more polite society on the road, uh, as we are in Britain generally, then that would be great. OK, so no, no small campaign here. You want London to become a, a politer place. <laughs> Absolutely. We should bring in the map. It's sort of described as being based on Harry Beck's tube map. You're talking about a nude's map of cycle networks. Yeah, OK, so the, the idea here is to present London in a kind of a user-friendly, diagrammatic fashion for cyclists. What are, what are the sort of pros and cons of this? Does this make sense in the same way that perhaps those sort of lay-by, pit-stoppy jobs do? Lovely for the beginner or when you're trying to find your first route around London. As a cyclist, you're always trying to find safe places. But cyclists are a bit like water. We flow to the, the shortest, safest route. And we do that through our own networks and by passing on information to each other. So a map is a fantastic place to start. In the end, it's just your own savvy that will get you from one place to the other. But also, when you're cycling, there's not really any capacity to, to, to look at a map. You would need to have memorised that anyway. I mean, I don't cycle, so, Sharon, are there... I mean, are there? do you have the ability to, to somehow fix a GPS or a, or a smartphone to, to a bike to use in that way? Um, you know what? I don't know, but I would never try it. No, I'm trying to hang on to my brake, hang on to my handlebars, yeah. hang on to my life and get to work. So I haven't got much to think about apart from being safe. This could be another of those urban myth jobs. I am almost certain that I read that as part of the cost of buying a new bike, there is in that some small amount of money set aside for something like a tom-tom for bikes. And it's, it's some sort of government-funded thing that exists. Um, I think we need to dig more into this, but I'm, I'm absolutely sure there's um, something in there. I mean, some more practical suggestions for dealing with this have been a really simplified sat-nav, where you've basically got light-up arrows on your handlebars, and as you're cycling along, it just flashes turn left here. Because the one thing you can't do as a cyclist, right, is take your eyes off the road yeah. in the same way that you can do, as you say, as a driver. You can't stop and look at the sign that says, if you're travelling on Route 33, then you go down this way. 
glasses as well. I love this idea that there's going to be like Google glasses, like sort of augmented reality and glasses. And I think that's an exact example of, of something where that would be useful. We're living in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly are. And I think something like a GPS, perhaps in the city in the weekend where it's quiet, you could perhaps use a map like that to get around and see some really interesting sites in the city of London which is particularly quiet and you can go to all those hidden places which exist that you never get to go to mm, That's a good point. The, the cost of this scheme is thought to be around £500,000. That's incredible um, the, you compare that with the cost of £140 million cost of the cycle hire scheme over six years. And if you think about Cycling per se just makes economic, environmental and health sense all over. So it sounds like a good investment. Um, Okay, another way to find your way around London would, of course, be the blue plaques. And we know about the blue plaque scheme. Neil, I think this could be your terrain. Yeah, so there's this story that English Heritage is going to stop issuing the blue plaques because because of cuts. And, well, this just seems a terrible shape. The great it's, it's, it's great to just wander London and the sort of serendipity of coming across a building that you've going down the street that you've not been down and seeing, you know, Charles Dickens once had a cup of coffee in this house or something is is, is one of the great joys of walking around London. But how much really does it cost to make a blue plaque and stick it on a wall? I don't think it costs that much, but I do, but I think it's important to note that English Heritage have said that they will uh, reduce the numbers of staff. Uh, working on the, in the blue plaque division um, and it started in 1866 and, and there's hundreds of blue plaques around um, I think they're going to continue with it I, I hope it's not the demise of the blue plaque and if it is some, some other organisation I hope will take it up I mean, it strikes me that, yeah, they can't cost that much to produce, so this is probably a, a sort of PR exercise on the behalf of the English Heritage to sort of highlight the fact that they are having these swinging cuts to their to their budget, and this is obviously something that's going to, as, as I have just done, it's going to hit the uh, public imagination quite hard, I think. Mm, yeah. Does this sort of thing cross over with, with your line of work? Do you actually come into contact with these guys? Are you, are you interacting with them to perhaps provide them with information for the plaques or anything like that? Um, not really, but it, but where it really does intersect is that you know the Museum of London is about place, and it and it affects me both personally and as a museum director. You know, by marking where individuals have lived or these moments uh, around London, and 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 as you say, like people walking around serendipitously coming across these plaques it's just hugely important and in in my own experience you know close to me on Herne Hill um is uh, Boris you know, Boris Karloff's birthplace who'd have thought that he was born you know near my near Peckham Rye fantastic fantastic thing to come across Every time I leave the country and come back to London, I can't help noticing how much we like to tell people what to do in this city. You go down this street, don't deviate off the cycle route, this, is, this happened just here, wash your hands, stand on the left, all of this kind of stuff. Aren't we a little bit overwhelmed with signs telling us stuff? But as I said earlier, I think this works best when it's not like that, when you just, you're just walking across the street and your eye catches one. You know, that's the point. They're unexpected. You see something and it says, yes, Boris Karloff lived here. And you think, wow, I presumed he was from Transylvania or something. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's the point. That's the joy of those things is that you, they're unexpected. And it is something for us all to relate to. Who knows, you might get blue plaques in the future. 
Uh, we could get blue plaques now, presumably. Why don't we just make blue plaques? Well, I think that's the point. There's a, there's a great story there, which is talking about the artist Gavin Turk, how he pulled this this prank, which was to put one up at, at one of the houses that he's li- he'd lived in when he was when he was first working. And that joke obviously only works if these things are, are relatively rare. I think there's a sort of very British thing of celebrating almost something that's a bit pointless in that it doesn't matter that this is a house that, you know... Charles Dickens lived in for like uh, a week while he was a child before he actually it's almost an irrelevant fact but there's just something there's just something really nice about it if you see one that says this is the house he worked in while he wrote all of his major works that's one thing but one that just says this is a this is a place that he he rented for two weeks on holiday somewhere then that seems like it's in, in some ways that's less important but those are the ones that are more interesting it's it's those are the ones that give that sort of weird weird sort of weird sort of joy when you see them and go oh, I wasn't expecting that I've noticed that right around the country Queen Elizabeth slept everywhere at one point or another this pardon <laughs> no I didn't say anything offensive there at all <laughs> I don't know what you're hearing Sarah well if we are gonna if if these blue plaques are gonna disappear then I just thought I'd mention that there is um a far more far more important to the English imagination cultural site is the pub and you've got on the website this week on the Londonist website there's a there's a a link to a a fantastic new map by the artist Herb Lester which is called the London pub for all reasons which you can buy which lists a, a number of pubs that are particularly interesting to visit for for a reason not necessarily to do with drinking so for instance it mentions the Hollybush in Hampstead which apparently is a good place to go on an autumn afternoon why, why though? I guess they. Uh, I guess to watch the sunset over the heath. That sounds very nice. Again. What was the name of that app again? Um, the map. It's a map called a London pub for all seasons. It's actually a, a still something that exists in the physical world. Oh, it's a physical map. thing. Yes, there's a picture yes. of it here. It's it's one of your old-fashioned fold-up eight-page. Can't get it back together the same way. Jobs. Okay, fantastic. Where can we get hold of this? I wonder. So there's a, there's a link to the map to buy the map on the website of the of the artist who designed it. And that's Herb Herb Lester, as in Herb Alpert. HerbLester.com. That's a very attractive thing. Um, slightly less attractive is the uh, violence with which the new year has begun. Well, in fact, the, the violence with which last year ended as well. I just want to chuck this in as a bit of a public service announcement. Um, I find this completely disgusting. A pregnant woman was beaten and robbed by two men whilst pushing her baby in a pram in North London. And this happened, I believe, on Christmas Eve. The 39-year-old was grabbed from behind and punched to the ground on Regent's Park Road between Chalk Farm and Primrose Hill. And basically the pram, with the baby in it, was, uh, while she's being attacked, was uh, rolling off and, and rolled into a car park with the child inside. This is disgraceful, disgusting behaviour. I hope that we can do something to, to help with this. One suspect, white, six foot tall, stocky build. The other one, black, about five foot nine inches tall. Both men, London accents, and wearing black puffer-type jackets with black hats and black scarves covering their faces. The, the woman in question has been discharged. She's got uh, fairly bad bruising and this happened at 9 o'clock GMT Christmas Eve. So if you know anything about that, you know who to uh, get in touch with disgraceful behaviour. And I'm afraid it goes on as well into uh, the underground. Which station do you suppose is going to be the one that you wouldn't want to work at, Neil and Sharon? Uh, I guess it's probably going to be quite surprising, but I'm just going to plump for a, for a busy one, so somewhere like Leicester Square or Piccadilly Circus, I'd suggest. Uh, one of the West End uh, everybody drunk ones. No, no. The Oval. 
just because it feels dodgy. Yes, and all those cricket fans. All those cricket fans. Uh, oh, yeah, those. Notorious for their violence. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm sad to say it is London Bridge. It shows uh, the, the survey, and this was between January 1st and September 30th of last year. 48 incidents recorded at London Bridge involving physical violence and 29 of verbal abuse. And four of those were physical assaults, presumably on staff. Um, also in the top five, Liverpool Street, Uxbridge, Uxbridge, Baker Street and King's Cross, St Pancras. Why do people feel the need to attack underground stuff? I'm not really sure I understand that at all. And this is particularly the underground, not, it doesn't include London Bridge Station, which obviously is huge. It's not, it's not a particularly massive underground station, is it? So that one is quite surprising. In total, there were 1,000, get this, 1,745 incidents over the nine-month period, the equivalent of six uh, physically violent attacks a day. If it's, if it's that tube station, maybe it's frustrated commuters, I can only imagine. So maybe if they all turned to the bike, there wouldn't be that opportunity to <laughs> beat up other members of the community. This is London Underground staff that we're talking about, or just members of the public? No, this isn't the staff rampaging. No, no this I is mean, the... is, it, is it the staff that are being assaulted? <laughs> yes, this, this is physically violent stuff, and then there's a, a smaller figure, uh, sadly not small enough for the number of attacks on staff. So this is uh, getting on for 2,000 incidents of violence, or um, yeah, f- physical violence, but then a smaller number of attacks on staff. I mean, what, what does this say about us as a city? No, nothing good, surely? No, I mean, it, it does say that people need to be a bit more relaxed about the issues with commuting certainly have you ever been onto the station platform you know when um, <laughs> you know when it's like two minutes to the train that's okay but three minutes is enough to send people tutting and stamping their foot oh dear but then on a Sunday you get onto an underground platform and it's nine minutes until the next train and it feels like the world stopped <laughs> This is surely indicative that we, we get it too easy on our transport system. Yeah, I th- we are very impatient. But having travelled a lot and been to many different cities, the transport system in London is exceptionally good, phenomenally good. So, you know, you try getting on the tube in Japan, for instance. Have you actually seen those guys who jam everybody in like sardines? That they employ people on, on their platforms to push people onto the train, don't they? They certainly do, but it's great for people like me because I'm very tall. I'm so, that People are stuck in my armpits and I'm not stuck in theirs. Well, you are, you are in Japan, presumably, as well. Yes, you've got a whole extra level of air in the carriage. Let's bring this around to the Tom Ford story, because Tom Ford's got no problem with the attitude of Londoners. No, not at all. In fact, um, he's launching his men's collection here, and David Cameron is launching, uh, is, has launched it, uh, which is great to see, uh, fashion being really important to the London economy. Um, but Tom Ford has said that he would like to bring his children up here because of our irreverence, our humour, our uh, politeness, which is nice to know. Does not compute, surely. A minute ago we were were identifying the need for more politeness, then we were talking about beating up underground staff because we're feeling a bit tetchy, and he's here for the politeness. Tom Ford will soon change his mind once he's been assaulted (laughs) over a thousand times at London Bridge Station. (laughs) He's going to be the patsy for all of that, is he? (laughs) Here you go, see how you like this. Welcome to London. Just by the way, you guys, you, you, you don't sound like you're from London originally, Neil. I'm from Leicester originally. I think we discussed this last time I was on the podcast because we were talking about the mispronunciations of tube stations. Oh, Leicester. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. And you are from Leicester. Yeah. yeah. What about yourself, Sharon? Um, I was born uh, and grew up for the first few years of my life in Peckham, so Consort Road, and then I moved around the country. 
does that give you because um, I know a lot of people who are really quite passionate about London are not from London in the first place and you, you, you sort of come in and it's uh, an immigrant's love of the, the, the new home and all that kind of thing do you find that having started out in London that develops your, your love for the place do you appreciate it more or is it a place you, you need a holiday from uh, from time to time I know I love London uh, but it's not it, I don't I spend time in the countryside as well, so I need that combination of deep city experience and relaxing wild places. Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with that. I mean, I came down from Leicester and lived in London for about 15 years um, because everything I like to do, you could do better and more often in London, go to the theatre, go to the cinema, eat, things like that. Then, of course, when you live in London, you realise that you can't afford to do any of the things that you moved to London to do. <laughs> and so now for the last five years, I've lived in Southend-on-Sea. So actually, that probably disqualifies me. I shouldn't have mentioned that. I probably shouldn't even be on this podcast, really, should I? You, you are allowed. My opinions about London. <laughs> you, you are allowed. Well, I mean, what I particularly like your opinion on, uh, because we, we've sort of come to the cultural things that you, you come to London for and uh, Sharon that's very much what you're providing in your last job and in this one. What is your experience of the museum scene? It's, we seem to be in museums uh, an awful lot on this show. What do you think of the museums that we offer? I'm going to start the ball rolling by saying free museums got to be a good thing. Uh, almost unique in the world I think to have this much on offer for free. But what do you make of the, the different museums that are available here and perhaps with a focus on Natural History Museum and the Museum of London? Well, I think the, the big museums, the Museum of London, the Natural History Museum particularly, the Science Museum and the British Museum are clearly among some of the best museums in the world. I, the Natural History Museum is one of my favourite places. But, I mean, I'd also like to mention some of the best museums in London are the tiny museums that nobody's ever heard of. The John Soane Museum is, is one of my favourite places. It's just some weird, eccentric little little building full of gaudy stuff but it's like a it's a, a wonderful experience to wander around what's a museum got to do to feature on your list i think it's it's got to display a lot of amazing stuff but perhaps not necessarily in a patronizing way i think which might be a bit of a controversial opinion nowadays i mean i think people can go and you don't have to be force-fed the stuff if you see you see what i mean i think it's i think it's great to just be able to go and wander around a museum and discover things for yourself now is that the same as as wanting to do away with the kind of uh, slightly starchy the, the kind of thing that you associate with the, particularly the natural history museum from my childhood i've got to say uh, where everything was over there somewhere and there weren't animated velociraptors and all that kind of stuff it was uh, a little bit dusty um which do you prefer though which is the most patronizing out of those approaches for you well i yeah i'm weird i prefer the dusty version of that you know i I like rack after rack after rack of 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 boring rock samples i think that's that's an interesting thing a drawer drawer after drawer after drawer of insects i think is is what a natural history museum should be about but actually no that's not not fair the big the big roaring t-rex at the natural history museum is is great as well and i guess if that's something that can can excite younger people and make them then perhaps one day want to go and look at drawer after drawer of, of of insects then that's that's clearly a good thing right you've got to start that fire sharon how do you feel about the kind of views neil is espousing there well i think neil displays what actually london provides in terms of its museums a kind of a broad range something yeah. for everybody so if you want to go and see rocks displayed in serried rows then Neil can do that but they're equally a kind of really interesting exciting interactive museums there's galleries 
London's got about 200 museums, which is phenomenal. Some of the smallest, as you say. Um, and this kind of whole breadth, there's the Fan Museum, the John Soane's Museum, the Horniman, amazing collections. And, and it's that whole stock of museums that kind of provides a fantastic experience for people who live in London, but also it's what brings tourists back. And they are blown away to realise that entrance to museums is free. Now, earlier on, Sharon, you gave us a whistle-stop tour of the exhibition that's going on just around the corner from the cafe here at the Museum of London, and it's all about dissection. Um, I wanted to ask you, before we listen to that, I can't help noticing that there's a lot of dissection going on in London at the moment, either connected with the uh, the Deaf exhibition at the Welcome. There's a couple of museums that are uh, devoted to pathology and things of that sort. Um, what, what is this? Is this, a, is this a deliberate trend? Do museums sort of, are they influenced by each other in their, in their choice? Is, is this catching a, a bigger wave? What, what's going on here? There hasn't been a conscious uh, decision to sit down and go, oh, let's do dissection this year. And so in one sense, it's amazing to see the kind of zeitgeist that's happening around this subject. Death, mortality, human biology, anatomy, very interesting to people. And certainly in the exhibition, as you saw, this kind of combination of when science, public policy, um, all comes together uh, in these moments which are really important and interesting. And it's, it's important that museums like the Museum of London tackles a science issue as much as the Welcome Collection tackles an issue to do with art and looks at death through a particular lens. Doctor's Dissection and Resurrection Men is our, the main exhibition that's here until uh, the, the beginning of April this year. And it tells the story of um, the discovery of 24 bodies in the old Royal London Hospital grounds uh, by the Museum of London archaeology team. And these uh, finds were unusual in that they showed evidence of dissection. And we were able to assess the teaching methods and look at these bodies, which are both human and animals, and draw conclusions uh, about what was going on at this very specific time in London's history when there was a great demand for bodies, when the search for scientific information in relation to human anatomy was going full pelt. There weren't enough bodies to dissect, and this led to this whole uh, very interesting economic situation almost where supply absolutely didn't meet demand and and it ended up with some uh, individuals grave robbing and eventually killing people to supply to the surgeons so this exhibition tells this story and the legislation that came out of that in the 1832 anatomy act which helped to regulate um, this supply and demand situation and regulate bodies which were available for research and students who absolutely needed to have the be the best skilled in performing operations and that this was a time when there wasn't anaesthetic so you wanted your surgeon to be very skilled indeed and the legislation itself the anatomy act was controversial because it deeply affected poor people 
Well, why was there such a shortage? Presumably uh, the, the rate of death remained unchanged, uh, more or less. W- was it uh, something to do with uh, religion, people refusing to have their bodies used for this purpose or something like that? There was an absolute shortage in bodies available because um, at the time it was only bodies of uh, people who'd been executed that could be used for anatomical research. So what I didn't realise was that it went as far as uh, people being murdered for their bodies. Well, surgeons were desperate to get bodies so that they could perform, you know, so that their students could see dissections happening and um, thereby learn about surgery. Um, And there just wasn't enough. So the price of a body uh, was high. We're standing in front of an invention that looks as though it would have circumvented that whole issue. This is uh, a very modern piece of equipment that I think does a dissection, a sort of virtual dissection, without having to do too much to penetrate the body itself. Well, nowadays, through CT scanning and various imaging techniques, surgeons and doctors uh, can look into the body and use uh, for medical purposes and of course for uh, teaching purposes and that is a a method that's used today but as I was talking to uh, the chief anatomist at the Royal College of Surgeons he said today there's a greater need for bodies uh, than ever before which was came as a surprise to me. I guess there's just more complicating and interesting techniques and you know because we've discovered more medicine more ways to cure people i guess that there is you know there is more for doctors to do than there was i guess a lot of you know a lot of the 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 occupation of a victorian doctor was standing around watching most of his patients die without being able to do anything i guess cutting it open and seeing how it works there's no substitute for that really Uh, and if if you think about the complexities of a human body then you can see why students today still need to do that we're actually we're standing next to a a, a, an exhibition of that aren't we because there's this there's a display of like a, a a modern technique that medical students can use to sort of like a sort of artificial autopsy type of picture a way to a way to look inside a inside the body and i guess that throws up sort of questions that this, you know this is a, a less consumptive of of many sample bodies way of doing it but at the same time it means that they're not getting that sort of hands-on experience so you can sort of train on a computer how to how to you know about the the anatomy and how to how to dissect a body but when you're confronted with an actual human specimen once you're a doctor then that's obviously a you know a different matter and and a a living body under under anesthetic uh all that soft tissue you know all the various component parts of a body you know the nervous system the vascular system is it's very complex and and i can't imagine how one would even try to do the simplest of operations if you hadn't had the training. This is a beautifully put together exhibition, very low lighting, moody, uh, moody sort of atmosphere here. And we're passing a map of London now. We can see the London dock on the right, artillery ground, uh, around about the centre, Holborn. And at uh, the top here, the police patrol stopped two men with a basket in which were the bodies of a woman and a child, is a quotation from 1802. And this map is uh, telling us all about dissection in 1820s London. 
hospitals with dissection classes, churches and burial grounds, particularly associated with grave robbing. So this was big business. Absolutely big business. And when you look at this map, you can see that it was happening all over London. One cannot fail to be struck as one turns the corner by the exhibit here in a glass case. And uh, it is a crucified form, life-size. You can see the sinew and muscle poking through. This is, well, striking doesn't quite do it justice. It's... uh, an anatomical crucifixion of James Legg from 1801. Yes, this um, it's a, it's a cast actually of a James Legg's body, and and the artists wanted to see how a real body would um, hang if it was crucified. Um, because, as you can imagine, artists have meant there are many depictions of Christ on the cross, so they wanted to see what would really be happening to uh, a body in this in this form and this is why this um, thing was produced and it hangs in the Royal Academy. So this is the same sort of technique as a death mask presumably but uh, used to take in the whole of the the body. Yeah this was an exploration of 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 musculature uh, and a human body on the cross. Uh, no more than that. What I'm particularly struck by, and I don't know whether this is just coincidental or was was sort of part of the point. We just saw another exhibition just back there, which was like a you know one of the, 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 the there's many examples of old wax works and sort of ana- anatomical exhibitions, and they're incredibly you know gory and disturbing, but beautiful, but really well presented. And this this one that we're looking at now, particularly, it's it's it's, it's interesting that these things aren't just functional they're works of art in themselves this is like a really beautiful thing but it's also you know functional modeling of what a crucified man looks like yeah really mesmerizing isn't it very peaceful expression on uh, james Legg's face let's move along uh, i think we've got time for one more item here and of course we want to talk about everything um, as we move into the next area we can see uh, a coffin that's open so when you were buried or at this time people had this great fear of their graves of their bodies being robbed so they would they would go to great lengths to make sure that they their coffins were impregnable and this is a a very um, hefty coffin an example of that Uh, you could see the nails that went through this iron coffin um, and sometimes man traps were used in graveyards is that what it I thought that was a coffin clamp of some kind but it's a man trap yes indeed and imagine getting your leg caught in that horrible thing hence hence the warning not to step on it (laughs) please do not step on the plinth that has to be the most understated warning sign I've ever seen the trap isn't set I would like to say so even if you did step on the plinth you wouldn't get your leg chopped in half that would certainly be a deterrent to the old interactive museum uh, thing, wouldn't it? That would take us right back to Dusty Rock Collection straight away. <laughs> well, there we go. That was the uh, exhibition in question with the almost unpronounceable name, if you go quickly. can you, Sharon, can we have the full name of the exhibition, please? Doctors, Dissection and Resurrection Men. Even slowly, it's almost impossible. <laughs> um, wasn't that fantastic? Yeah, it's an, an astonishingly well-laid-out museum. Really, really great and interesting and thought-provoking stuff. You were saying something as well about the, the sort of the theme of death. 
Well, we were talking before we went in about the the idea that suddenly it's the, the zeitgeist are everywhere to have exhibitions about death, and obviously we were, we mentioned Welcome, and Welcome is Welcome Collection is obviously uh, you know a medical establishment, so this is it's probably not so surprising that they feature a lot of stuff for death. But of course, a museum like the Museum of London, which is focused on the history of London, is all really you know death is layered throughout the the museum's collection. It's all about history. It's all about people that aren't here now and how people used to live. But it's just I guess in the past that was a bit more taboo, and it's 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 great to see it actually come out and people want to discuss it. I was picked up as well on my use of the word dusty. I mean, it's a, a completely uh, completely sensible word to use, even more sensible than I realised in relation to museums. Indeed, you know, dust comprises m- mostly of human skin. So if you and and a dusty museum, as you described it, it is actually very true. It's one of the biggest issues that museums have to deal with: dusting our artifacts. Imagine five million visitors, as you know, uh, Tate have just announced. You know, five million. That, the, the dust that is generated by five million people has to be dealt with in some way and, and dusting our artefacts is a big job for any museum. That's particularly interesting and relevant where um, uh, an exhibition about dissection and bits of the body and so forth so we're, we're actually contributing bits of our body as we go through the exhibition. That's a really interesting thought. Of course, you know, we have a bit of you in our museum today. You'll be leaving a bit of yourself behind. That's such a lovely thought. I'm very pleased. So you're contributing to that Dust on the Rock collection. <laughs> we should uh, mention our sponsor, which is, as ever, uh, we're very proud to say, audible.co.uk, and they're offering you, for 2013, a free digital audiobook. They've got 60,000. Uh, I bet they've got more than 60,000. And if you haven't got 60,000, well, you better make a start then, and you can have one for free on them. Um, all you need to do is sign up for a 30-day free trial of the Audible service and uh, you get your free book and you can keep that forever. Sharon is currently writing this down. I think I've, I think I've snared a customer for our, uh, for our sponsor. The deal with these audiobooks, you'll be pleased to know, Sharon, I'm looking at you, is you can, you can burn them to a CD, you can download them onto an MP3 player, you get to keep them forever and they're very nicely read as well. There we go. I'll be signing up soon. Very good. www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist is uh, where you need to go for your free book and uh, that 30-day free trial. Then I would suggest that Londonist listeners would love to listen to Ben Goldacre's Bad Farmer, which is certainly available on audiobook. Yes, what's that book about? It's about the um, the duplicity of the pharmaceutical industry and um, te- uh, uh, drug testing and uh, uh, drug trials. You know the the, the the sort of issues that go on with with drug trials. And I would like to uh, suggest that people sign up for that old classic Jane Austen's Emma, uh, in which Gruel features as a as uh, the love of of Mr Woodhouse. Oh, we're we're back to Gruel. Okay, we we can't seem to escape it. What is this Gruel business? all about then um, and how is Boris Johnson uh, connected with it? So the Mayor's Fund has donated £650,000 to uh, 50 schools in London to give 5,000 kids free uh, breakfasts really important it made me think about nutrition and that some kids might be eating 
or not eating breakfasts and, and thinking about my breakfast porridge love it um, and and gruel is a watery version of porridge probably more nutritious than the kind of foods that kids are eating on a daily basis yes you see a worrying number of kids uh, dr- drifting into the uh, sort of chip shops and fried chicken stores and all that sort of thing both ends of the school and, and lunch as well I mean I've heard, heard this a lot from teachers actually is that they have a lot of trouble actually getting the kids to uh, sit down and stay in the seat and not fall asleep actually be able to concentrate because they're either not eating or eating the wrong stuff so these breakfast clubs are, are not just about nutrition and filling their bellies no and I think this is is absolutely true that I mentioned before about the uh, you know slightly facetiously about massive American diner breakfast and it, it really does it's so important to to have something in the morning to keep you going and then you know you can you can decide whether to have a <laughs> whether to have a lunch or not okay we've got two uh, story we've got three stories uh, left to to run here um, we're not going to touch on the boomerang tower I'm fed up with the skyscrapers at the moment so we're not going to talk about the plans for the boomerang tower if you want to see a picture of it Londonist.com is the destination for you. <laughs> I'll tell you what I was most interested by in this story, though. There is a publication called Skyscraper News. I'm going to subscribe to Skyscraper News. Um, incidentally, there's an ice sculpting festival going on. I dropped this in apropos of nothing else uh, very much. 11th to the 13th of January, various locations throughout the Canary Wharf area. The London Ice Sculpting Festival is going to be going on down there. First come, first served opportunities for you to get a masterclass in ice sculpting yourself which sounds very exciting. And there's going to be people competing in kind of live sculpting challenges and uh, these are going to be judged by the public. Freestyle competitions, ice chess, a Northern Lights laser show. I'm quite excited by the sound of this. I'm going to take my copy of Skyscraper News down to Canary Wharf and uh, take in some, some ice sculpting. Old Flow. What is Old Flow? Who is Old Flow? And why do we care? Well, I, I wanted to, to raise this subject because we're here at the Museum of London and um, Old Flow is, a, is, is the sort of colloquial name of a heavy more bronze that was displayed in in tower hamlets it was removed a while back and now the tower hamlets council um, are attempting to sell it off this caused a bit of a, a bit of a fuss and an, an acquaintance of mine from resonance fm the artist bob and roberta smith has been running a really fantastic campaign to get this stop this stopped and, and and the reason i wanted to talk about it is because i noticed him tweet today as i was coming in on the on, on the train to do this recording that it's it's possible that the um, museum of Docklands, which is part of the, the Museum of London, is is going to take this on. So I wanted to ask Sharon if that was actually if that was actually the case. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In November 2012, we heard that Old Flow was going to be potentially sold. So we wrote to the Mayor of Tower Hamlets um, because we understood that the sale was due to the fact that Tower Hamlets didn't feel that they could display the the piece safely, and that there was all sorts of issues. You know, some pieces of sculpture in london have be have been stolen yeah, particularly henry moore's in fact nationwide could, could we have just uh, before we go on a quick description of old flow what does old flow look like old flow is um a figurative uh, sculpture of a woman draped in uh flowing robes uh, tall bronze sitting on steps looking very poignant okay and uh, so you're going to be giving old flow what sort of home a wonderful home in tower hamlets our museum in docklands is in tower hamlets so it's very fitting that she could go there um and henry moore uh in 1963 um gave this statue um via the london county council to the stifford estate it was part of um 
public art throughout London and um, very much in the ethos of the times you know how to create uh, environments for normal people in which art and wonderful living conditions coexisted an old flow for properly named drape seated woman gained this kind of uh, meaning for the people who lived in the Stifford Estate in East London. So we want to bring her back. I think what's what's really interesting is obviously uh, this campaign has been started by an artist, and and you know we, we we're all sitting here talking on this podcast about it from like a sort of you know a, a sort of media pontificator's way. And I think you know that it's been presented in the media as a sort of philistine Tower Hamlets council wanting to, to sort of sell off public art. But I think also in the same way that we mentioned about the um, the, the the English heritage signs what this also does is highlights the fact that that tower hamlets council is basically you know crushed under a, under a regime of, of swinging government cuts as well you know our um, our beloved coalition government is obviously like imposing huge cuts on councils very much like tower hamlets i think that's always worth highlighting as well i, I must draw back from your statement there that we were representing tower hamlets as philistines i don't think that i don't think i was <laughs> were you no, Sharon wasn't either. Uh, I, I, absolutely not. Councils have to make tough decisions. What I, what we hope to do is to convince Tower Hamlets that Old Flow is deeply meaningful to the people of the borough uh, and is deeply meaningful in the context of the history of London, post-war London. I always think with these sort of things, tell me if I'm wrong, but part of the success of a campaign like that is demonstrating to the and persuading the, the, the public why something like this is of interest, what the history behind it is, what the meaning is, so that people really do feel a connection with, in this case, the piece of art. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what's happened in this case, that there's been lots of public displays, there's been lots of sort of protest is probably a bit too harsh a word but gatherings and and sort of happenings around tower hamlets to to do with it and it seemed to have captured the public's imagination okay final story on today's show does east london need a new river crossing you know we could almost do this in a show of hands neil what's the uh, what's the story here so this is about a, 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 I think, a consultation that the London Assembly have done recently for a um, tunnel in the Silvertown area, which looks like it's not been particularly popular. And there was also a, a idea for a, a new ferry service between Beckton and Thamesmead, which I think might have been scrapped as well. So basically, this is there's there's, there's lots of possible options for a a river crossing further east, and you just asked us to to give a show of hands. I think I. I can't honestly see why a greater number of river crossings all the way along the river is 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 not just a just a great idea <laughs> yes maybe just one long tunnel that everybody, <laughs> everybody can, can get a tunnel of bridges just, just concrete it all over yes good idea us. well we've lost <laughs> mo- we've lost most of the other rivers of london haven't we? we might as well just get rid of the thames yeah in all seriousness though this is uh, sort of long uh, long been discussed and it ties in doesn't it sharon you've got something coming up here about the uh, the estuary more generally Yes, in our Docklands uh, Museum, we've got a big exhibition, which is an art exhibition um, based on views and visions of uh, the Thames estuary. The Thames is a big, long river, Britain's biggest river. Um, It's been the source of our... It's the source of London's history, actually, river crossings. You can never have too many in my view. And um, another river crossing would be great in terms of connecting both sides of the city. Um, So uh, the exhibition estuary opens later this year. And uh, I know you've got changes uh, coming on on the the work front on your side, Neil. 
Denny, Little Atoms, your podcast. How long has it been going for now? Uh, just over six years. We've, six years. We've been doing the podcast, yeah, in various in various permutations. Okay, and you've got a, a, a new look coming up for 2013. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to do like a vague relaunch of the of the podcast in the, in, the, in the new year. And this comes off the back of, and I'll, I'll give a plug for another um, another podcast series that I did earlier last year in May of 2012. I, I got a grant from an organisation called the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, and I tra- a, a travelling fellowship it was, and I travelled to America for a month drove across the country, drove 6,600 miles interviewing scientists and there is a podcast series that's on iTunes there's about 35 interviews called Little Atoms Road Trip so look that up one of the things that came out of that was uh, towards the end of the year I realised that I, Little Atoms is, is, a, um, is an enterprise that I do entirely for free in, in my own time I have a day job and um, I realised that like, I basically wasn't keeping up with the research because I was, I was I'd taken on this, uh, this other project so what I've decided to do in the new year basically I'm only going to do two major interviews a month rather than it being a a new interview every week I'm still going to do a weekly show we're moving to an hour-long slot which from half an hour which seems counterintuitive because I'm saying I want to take on less work than more but basically what there's going to be is it's going to be nine o'clock on a Friday night for an hour there's going to be two major interviews a month one show a month is going to be I'm going to put together a, a sort of clip show of, of old favourites from the, from the back catalogue and one show a month I'm going to do a, a more sort of perhaps more slightly easier and self-indulgent interview with other podcast producers some of my favorite podcasts so and Quentin you might get tapped up to do that one later in the year but um this this oh, so I'm, I'm not top of your favorites list then mm. <laughs> you're on the list you are certainly on the list um I've already booked up the the, the first few and um, these the new version of Little Atom starts on starts today but there's there's a, a old favourite show tonight. So the first proper interview is Friday the 18th, and it's with Casper Henderson, who's the author of an amazing book called The Book of Barely Imagined Beings, which is a sort of 21st century take on a on a medieval bestiary, and it's absolutely wonderful, sort of like illuminated text. It looks amazing. I love some of the subjects you do. You, it's it's really weird uh, stuff sometimes. That's sort of magical thinking, or the existence of God, or TPs, or whatever it might be. So all all sorts of stuff going on there and it's sort of, so it's on resonance so it goes out live and then there's also the podcast yeah so it's we're on resonance fm on a friday night from nine o'clock to ten o'clock and then there is so the podcast little atoms or i'll mention again little atoms road trip are both on itunes so basically just search for them on itunes sharon i don't know about you but i'm quite impressed with the idea of managing to do a, a trip across the states and 40 interviews in a month that blows my mind certainly does and I thought that men couldn't multitask as well as fitting in all those big uh, what was it short stacks and um, and grilled burritos <laughs> so yeah how can that how can someone do that I'm impressed what have you uh, got coming up here Sharon Ament and how can people find out more about it certainly go to our website uh, museumoflondon.org.uk the next big exhibition that I'm really looking forward to is uh, celebrating Michael Caine's birthday so exhibition here about Michael Caine Okay, well, thank you both for being with us today. As you know, we always finish the show with a London trivia quiz. There's a lot of train stuff on this week's uh, quiz. There's five questions. It's the the week in London, basically, but not necessarily this year. In fact, the first question, uh, Monday the 7th of January, 1927. What is launched to connect London to New York? It's a commercial service. 
the uh, wireless wire cables something to do with is it the undersea the 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 transatlantic cable from from the Penzance to from the south of Cornwall across to America. I'm not. I'm not sure. With, uh, nobody said well, it's, it's a bit late for a telegraph service. It is too late for the telegraph service. So what is it time for? In 1927. Radio. No. It's not television. Sure. No. Telephone. Yes, it's the telephone. <laughs> we got there eventually. <laughs> well done. One to uh, technology. <laughs> yeah, right. One to nil. Tuesday, the eighth of January, nineteen ninety-one. A packed rush hour train carrying over one thousand commuters collides with buffers at a particular London station. It kills one person and injures hundreds. Which station are we talking about in nineteen ninety-one? Kings Cross. Not Kings Cross. Can't remember this. I do know this, but uh, you're you're vaguely in the right sort of part of town it's one of the hubs but perhaps one of the less obvious ones was it Cannon Street it was Cannon Street to to nail uh, Wednesday the 9th of January 1806 following a grand state funeral the body of whom is buried beneath the dome of St Paul's Cathedral 1806 I'm warming my hand on the brain bow here Sharon mugging wildly pray, praying way too late to be Christopher Wren isn't it uh, yes <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm just thinking of people connected with the with, with St Paul's. Yeah, too late for Jesus as well. <laughs> Is it royalty? No, it, you need to think war. I mean, defence of the realm, that kind of stuff. This is not, not helping. Mine, do, you, do you need a hand with this? Yes. yes. That's a bit of a clue. Is it a hand? Nelson. Nelson. Yes, it's Nelson. Nelson. <laughs> Nelson. Sharon got my clue. <laughs> That's one to Sharon, two to Neil. Thursday, the 10th of January, 1863. A particular railway running between Paddington Station and Farringdon Street Station, as it was known at the time, opens to the public. It would form the first part of what we now consider to be the London Underground Network. What was that line called? Is it the Bakerloo line? Not the Bakerloo. Is it and still an existing name of a line? Yes, it is. Metropolitan? It is the Metropolitan line. Your, uh, your victory is secured. But Sharon, there's uh, still one to make up here if you want it. Want to get, get some sort of. Uh... <laughs> yes, all right. London, this is pathetic. Friday, the 11th of January, 1864. Which railway station is opened? Is this the first one? No, not the first. We should know that because it's uh, 150 years. Ah, uh, yeah. Sorry, my maths isn't isn't particularly good of a morning. I'm going to be uh, patriotic to the Museum of London and say St Paul's. No. It's got to be a mainline station, isn't it, then? So uh, I'm going to go for St Pancras. No. Further south than that. Victoria. Not Victoria. Waterloo. No. Oh, Paddington. <laughs> no, you were in the right sort of area earlier on. South. Uh, London Bridge. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think... I, don't, I, I want to put you out of my misery. Go on. Go on, it, you need to. <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is Charing Cross. Oh. Railway station. But don't worry, I've got a backup fifth question here. (laughs) Yes, this is possibly my favourite. This is this is more of a fact than anything else. What do Hyde Park Corner, Wimbledon Common, and Ham Common near Richmond have in common? Obviously, quite a a few things, but we're talking about their crossings. What have they got in common with each other? They were all sites of hangings. That's got nothing to do with a crossing. 
No, 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 no. I mean, that might be true. But <laughs> I think pretty much everywhere in London was the site of a hanging. But no, this is about the road crossings at the, the, the parks. So what? Tell us the three parks again. It's Ham uh, it's Hamcommon, Wimbledon Common, and Hyde Park Corner. If I was to say Pegasus Crossings, what would that mean to you? A bridge. As opposed to a Pelican Puffin, Puffin or Toucan Crossing. These are Pegasus crossings. They're crossings designed to uh, service a particular kind of um, road stroke pavement user. There's a clue in the name. Horses. Horses, yes. They are horse crossings. I, I never knew what this. What does a horse crossing look like? Well, this is it. Um, like, is it like a zebra crossing? <laughs> no, no, no. This is for riders. So basically they've got additional activation buttons that are two metres up off the ground so that if you're on a horse you can press the button. Isn't that interesting? Oh, you're a very tall person. <laughs> yes, I could use them, couldn't I? Well, there we go. That's on, on that uh, exciting piece of information. That is all from here at the Museum of London for this week. Sharon Ament and Neil Denny, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Here she stands. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week's guests, Neil Denny and Sharon Ament. Thanks to Barclay, Zoe Crane, Rupert, and Dave Haste. The incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson, and I'm N. Quentin Wolf. Inch by inch, waiting for the river's care, straining for the blueing waves calling from the shore. Faith 